0: Monday of Holy Week. Yesterday was Palm Sunday. I trust that you cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I trust that you acknowledged that Jesus is King, not in the way in which the people of his day uh, expected him to come in as King, but he is King indeed. I'm also hoping that with me, you are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which is, you know, save us today, Lord. Save us today. People are um, maybe more acutely aware today of their need of salvation. It occurs to me that SOS means save our souls, SOS. And there are lots of people in the culture today sending up an SOS. And you and I as Christians are meeting that SOS with an H O P E. That's right. You and I meet the world's SOS, save our souls, with the hope, H O P E, helping others perceive eternally or eternity, however you want to view that. Helping others perceive eternally. That's the answer to the SOS that people are sending up today. I just want you to encourage you today um, to be answering the SOS of the world. With the H O P E of Christ. We have really nothing else to which we cling. Um, and during this most holy of weeks, we have a profound opportunity to not only spend time with Jesus in Jerusalem as he approaches Golgotha, Calgary, Calvary, the, the cross, um, but we also have the opportunity to translate what that means. To the, go- to the culture in which we live? How do we take the gospel to the culture? So that's my encouragement today to consider. How are you an agent of the hope of Christ to the people of a culture crying out SOS? The reality that people recognize that their souls need saving, that that is a huge gospel opportunity. So this is Monday of Holy Week. Yesterday was Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is Easter in between, we will uh, journey with Jesus in Jerusalem on his way to the cross. COVID-19 cases are expected to spike this week in the United States. That is uh, the word from the U.S. Surgeon General. It's also the word from uh, the President and the Vice President. If you have been listening or reading any of the reporting or hearing any of the reporting out of any of the White House briefings over the last few days, this is the week that we are expecting Uh, cases of confirmed coronavirus, not only infection, but deaths to begin rising. Remember that those numbers of deaths are going to lag by 10 days to two weeks following um, whenever we reach the peak in terms of diagnoses. And so as our number of confirmed cases continues to rise, then we are looking 10 days to two weeks out from that in terms of the spike in confirmed deaths caused by the coronavirus or attributed to it. And so let's just be mindful of that. We are facing a couple of weeks here in the United States where uh, death is going to come with a frequency with which we are not used to um, hearing reports. Now, to be fair, if you and I heard a confirmed um, accurate reporting every day of the number of abortions performed in the United States, uh, the death toll by coronavirus would um, not seem so staggering to us. But we don't talk about things like how many people die every day as a result of abortion in the United States. We, we talk about big round numbers at the end of a year, something like close to a million. But we don't talk about it on a day-to-day basis. And so let's be sober in the way that we think about the numbers being reported in terms of, um, in terms of reality and the culture in which we live and the culture of death in which we live. All right, next up, um, I've got Zach Jenkins back. He is an infectious disease specialist. He's a professor of pharmacy practice at Cedarville University. He is uh, joining us on this Monday morning to bring us up to date on um, the coronavirus, proposed treatments, numbers, all kinds of things. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Professor Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. He joined us last week. He is here again this week. We appreciate you being here. He's an infectious disease expert and a professor of pharmacy practice at Cedarville University. Welcome back, Zach. Good morning. Good morning. So I know that each and every week you are um, uploading a uh, a video to YouTube to help us sort of understand where we are in terms of the coronavirus. Um, and I know that this week's Uh, video really focuses in on the hydroxychloroquine. Yes? Am I pronouncing it correct? The uh, hydroxychloroquine azithromycin uh, potential treatment protocols. And so I want to talk about that, but I have a number of other things I want to talk with you about as well related to the virus. So we're hearing a lot about this proposed Uh, this proposed malaria drug or drugs being used uh, in the treatment of COVID-19. Tell us what you know about all that.
2: So really where these things started is um, back during the SARS outbreak and the MERS outbreak, which were two other coronaviruses, there were some uh, studies done in laboratory settings and they saw some activity with hydroxychloroquine, which is a medication that we've typically just reserved for use in the treatment of malaria. Um, so, with that in mind, China and some other uh, countries that were really hit by the coronavirus first, they ended up trialing this in their in their populations as part of their treatment protocols, but they didn't actually study it. So, they, they thought that it worked, but again, there wasn't a lot of data to support that it did. And so, we've started to use this around the world. Um, more recently, it's been used in Italy and France, and it's starting to be used here in the United States uh, because of that, that supposed activity that may it may have. Um, because one of the challenges that we've had with with, uh, COVID-19 is we really don't have any true treatment outside of just providing supportive care.
0: And we talk about supportive care, we're really talking about just supporting somebody's immune system to fight it themselves. That's correct. So that's really the conversation that I want to have next, because we're now beginning to hear about people who are recovering, pretty significant numbers of people recovering. Um, And I'm hearing that there are ways in which their blood or plasma might help us understand how to fight uh, COVID nineteen. So, can you talk with us about how people who have recovered then become sort of agents of grace in the in the uh, search for treatments and maybe ultimately a vaccine?
2: Sure. So, so, so I think what you're referring to um, it's, it's uh, convalescent plasma. So it's it's a blood product that uh, basically is derived from people have had the virus before. And, and the, the basic theory behind it is that if you've actually had the virus and you truly have recovered, you're probably developing some long-term immunity to the virus itself. And so they think that uh, by giving someone some plasma from a patient who's actually had the virus, you may be transferring over some of those antibodies and helping another person to kind of speed up their ability to fight off the infection. There are some limitations with that though, um, so, so we don't necessarily know that it works, just like all of these different treatments that we're talking about with COVID-19. Uh, and another big concern is when we've tried this in, in some other things, uh, dengue fever is an example. It was actually kind of paradoxical in the sense that it actually made them worse than better. So we have to take some of those things with a grain of salt still, but there is definitely some promise to the thought that maybe this could prove to be an effective treatment modality.
0: What else do you think today, um, Zach? I mean, my list includes things like, okay, we have, um, we were at the point where we were seeing something like 40% or more than 40% of people tested in New York um, test positive. Now that number is in the high 30s. I'd like to talk about um, those places where the percentage of people tested, uh, you know, the positive tests are, are going down, but then just right across the river in New Jersey, they are now up over 40 percent in terms of tests that are returned that are positive. So um, when we come back from the break, can we talk about that? Can we talk about um, state by state? I mean, we're not going to go through all 50, but like there are places where it's very, very low. The percentage of, of tests that are being returned positive are very low. Other places where they're pretty high. And will you talk with us about maybe some expectations that we should be having in terms of where we live and how this is going to move Absolutely. Great. We'll be right back. I'm talking with Zach Jenkins. He is a professor at Cedarville University, professor of, excuse me, pharmacy practice. Uh, He is an infectious disease expert, and he is my guest this morning here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Professor Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University, Uh, we are talking about Covid nineteen, the coronavirus. Uh, he posts a video, an explanatory video, every single week on YouTube. You can find it through Cedarville News. You can find it through Cedarville.edu. Um, you can find it by Googling Zach Jenkins, Cedarville Covid nineteen. That's the way. Uh, that's the way I tracked it down this morning um, for this week's edition. So we have had our first death in a U.S. federal prison. We've had our first animal contraction, a tiger in the Bronx Zoo, um, and we have. We're hearing these you know, changing percentage numbers in New York and New Jersey and across the country. Talk with us a little bit about, I don't know, do you call it infection rate? Do you call it, what do you call it in terms of the percentage of people who are testing positive um, for the, uh, for COVID-19 and sort of like as that changes, what's the language we're supposed to be looking for?
2: So I, I think you describe it pretty well, but by, by calling it infection rate, I mean, the biggest thing that we're trying to figure out is how quickly this doesn't even infect people. Um, but one of the limitations that we've really had to date has been testing. And if we kind of look at some of the tests that uh, have been used, basically about one in, one in three people that that are tested using the PCR test, which is what's usually used first, which kind of replicates the viral data and they kind of look to see if they see that data. Uh, about one in three people end up coming back negative with that if they only use single tests. So that's one of the problems that we've had. Um, another issue has been limited access with testing. And so I think where you're seeing some of these numbers grow significantly uh, in, in some of the uh, states that weren't necessarily hit first, it's most likely because they're having a greater access to testing. Well, I mean, the virus is itself spreading throughout that population. We have to kind of keep the testing piece of it in mind as well. I think what, one other thing to keep in mind, so the, the, the thought is that maybe with New York, they may be reaching that peak of infection. So the the highest number that they're going to see before it starts to taper off because more people have been exposed to the virus, maybe there's some immunity developing and and that sort of thing.
0: Okay. And then we continue to um, receive new uh, recommendations kind of every single week about what we should be doing. So we're, you know, we're all washing our hands. We're social distancing. Uh, Now, um, we are um, being encouraged to wear masks, obviously not medical grade, but we're being encouraged to wear some kind of covering over our nose and mouth. Apparently, the Pentagon is requiring everybody related to the Pentagon to actually wear full face shields. What are you doing?
1: That's a really
2: good question. Um, At at my hospital right now, uh, when I'm not out in public, they're actually giving us a single mask a day. Um, now, we have enough to do that for now, but there are some places in this country where they have basically get a mask a week. Um, and for people that are frequently exposed to patients, that can be kind of a concern because these aren't necessarily those those masks that filter out the really small particles. But even so, out in public, uh, you know, to date, they really kind of debated about whether or not this cloth mask or facial covering has has much of an impact. And what they found is we've gotten more and more data back is about 25% of people that have the virus are asymptomatic in the United States. So what that means is they may have no idea they have the virus, they don't have any symptoms, and could be potentially spreading. And so for that reason, the CDC has revised their, their recommendation to say that we should be wearing masks when we can out in public, simply because we will pre- prevent the spread of the virus to other people through that way. All so, right, so I actually am holding a mask that the mother-in-law may need <laughs>
0: All right, now let me ask this. So I don't, I don't, I don't have a mask per se at my house. Um, I don't have a sewing machine at my house. Even if I did, I'm not sure that I'm clever enough to do that today. Um, but I have a bandana. I have a scarf. I have, um, you know, can I just? I mean, other than I would look like a bandit a bit. Um, can I just do that?
2: So without a doubt, you could use something like a bandana. And actually, the CDC has. Put out some recommendations on how you might be able to make a mask without sewing. So you can take oh, a nice. bandana, and I think they suggest uh, taking a piece of a coffee filter and sort of wrapping that piece up, and that's the part that ends up going over your mouth. Hmm. Um, so that can indeed work.
0: I am pulling that up today. I'm finding that on YouTube. I am making some of those. That sounds anything that does not require a sewing machine. That's now your that's right up my alley. Um, oh, if it
2: okay, probably just, Duct tape across my mouth, so I understand.
0: <laughs> okay. As you look at this week, Zach, um, give us some sort of. Uh, do you see any signs of hope? And what sort of worries you most as you look toward this week?
2: I think, um, as far as I guess I'll start with what worries me most. I think what we're probably going to see, and, and they've really been hinting at, it, is we're going to see the number of cases spike. We may see the number of deaths spike. Um, Probably in, in a lot of those other states that haven't necessarily had a large number reported yet, like New York or New Jersey, because they are a little bit behind as far as when they were exposed to the virus. So I think, I think that's coming. Um, the hope is, this, this is a hopeful part. I think some of these states may start to turn the peak that are a little bit further ahead. And that, that might be what they're thinking about with New York in, in the next week or two. Um, the other thing is I, I I'm actually pretty, encouraged by a lot of the response that I'm seeing in the community to the situation. I, I'm encouraged by by a lot of companies coming on board and trying to help out where they can, um, showing things like masks to give to medical providers and, and community members. I'm encouraged by people trying to take care of the elderly who are, are a high-risk population by bringing them food and getting them groceries and things like that. Uh, I'm, I'm encouraged by Kind of the community staying in touch with each other through electronic means when we haven't really thought about that before. So, I think there's some real silver linings. We're, we're kind of remembering what it's like to be with our loved ones and our families, and kind of not be busy all the time uh, for for the most part. And I think that's something to take away from this.
0: Absolutely. Um, thank you again for joining us today. Uh, we really we really appreciate it. Um, Again, Zach, why don't you tell people, what's the easiest way for them to find what you're doing each week on YouTube?
2: So if you look up Cedarville University's YouTube account, you should actually see those COVID-19 videos posted right there. Uh, You could also search in YouTube, Cedarville University COVID-19. Perfect. Um, And I guess the last would be you could follow the Facebook page for Cedarville University. Oh,
0: that might be easiest for people. All right, so if you follow the Facebook page for Cedarville University. They are posting them. um, They're posting the videos there as well. That might be the easiest uh, for our listeners as well. So, Zach, thank you so much, as always. Continued prayers for your health, your safety, um, God's God's heads of protection around you and your family and those with whom you serve. Uh, We really appreciate you being with us here today on Morning with Carmen.
2: Thank you so
0: much. Thank you. We'll be right back. All right. I'm just letting you know, uh, listeners are texting in. Hey, Hey, what was that about Uh, a coffee filter? How do you make your own mask? Okay. So in the meantime, I have, I have, uh, Googled on YouTube to find this. I think what we're looking for is do it yourself, DIY, no, so face masks. And then I added the word coffee filter because there are several that, um, uh, that don't include that. But let me tell you, this is a, uh, they show you how to do it with a scarf, a pillowcase, a bandana. I mean, on and on and on. Um, Pretty much it looks like you need a coffee filter, some piece of fabric, and a couple of um, ponytail ties. Like that is really the sum total of it. Um, if you want to add a nose clip, then you you probably also need um, it looks like a paper clip that you're going to that you're going to use. So there you go. Um, all kinds of cool stuff out there. Don't um, don't be afraid to you know to use the Googler for this. Okay, um, up next I have another college professor. It's kind of like Smarty Pants Hour Monday morning here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Adam Carrington will be with us from Hillsdale College, and we're gonna kind of explore the question of what might it all look like after coronavirus like after the world has moved beyond the pandemic what are some things that we might expect and let me just say we should probably expect the unexpected that's up next here on mornings with carmen
1: when your child's report card comes home are you pleased or deflated hi i'm mark gregston with parenting today's teens How do you respond when you're expecting A's and your kid brings home B's? Keep these principles in mind. First, never step in to rescue your child. Doing their homework reinforces their failure. Second, if you notice a drastic and sudden decline in grades, look for a deeper cause. There may be something wrong, such as depression or drug abuse. And finally, if grades drop, Don't overreact by punishing poor performance. Your child's value surpasses a report card. Stay on their team and be the mom and dad they desperately need. Want more
2: parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: me now, Dr. Adam Carrington. You can follow him on Twitter at Carrington AM. He is the second leg of this morning's Smarty Pants Hour on Mornings with Carmen. I don't know what else to call it. I have two back-to-back professors.
1: Uh, wow. Uh, uh, you may want to check the ratings after all of this. Uh, <laughs> right? Spike. I expect
0: a total spike in ratings. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad to be the second leg of the Smarty Pants Tour. How's, right. how's that?
0: It's so fantastic. Okay. So, the issue at hand, sir, is what might we expect sort of after all of this uh, coronavirus pandemic has had its way with the world? I have been looking at and reading some post World War I and then post World War II um, commentary, like things that, you know, when people like look at what happens around the world when something really mammoth and major that affects every nation under heaven takes place, like things shift. Let's talk about that.
1: Right. And and I think if you just look at what's happening short term, we've got a massive change uh, in politi- use of political power. Uh, no one would ever have thought that the things that government has asked us or told us to do would in a normal time occur or we'd, that we'd stand for it. Massive changes in the economic system. The economic system's basically uh uh, at least temporarily stopping even falling apart, and even massive changes in how and where we interact with others right and 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 of course, you know, I think there 's going to be something of a snapback we 're not going to shelter in place for eternity i don 't think uh dating is going to go completely onto zoom or something like that, uh but you 're right to look at past things like uh, the, 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 especially the, the flu epidemic in 1918, World Wars One and Two, because uh, there's going to be m- significant political, economic, and social changes, at least in parts of the world, if not the entire world. And I, I think the way to think about that, and the way to think about these past ones that have occurred that you were uh, noting, is what becomes the narrative of what just happened? You know, there's competing articulations of uh, did all this happen because we have too much connection with the rest of the world and need to stay in, you know, need to take care more of our own? Is it uh, government overreach that overreacted to something that wasn't as bad as we thought it was? Is it going to be the government was too inept and weak? Uh, Is it going to be that we didn't have enough social bonds? We had too you know, too much. Uh, 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 That's going to be, I think where that social change goes, who gets blamed and who gets praised dominantly. There's a lot of things going around now. I think that's going to be some of the questions to get into some detail about as, as we see this all unfold.
0: So as we look back, um, the stability of Europe is more in question than the stability of the United States. The stability, the uh, the endurance of the European Union, I think is hugely in question. Um, comment a little bit on the fragility versus the staying power of particular um, ways of organizing ourselves. I think we would call that, uh, you know, forms of government, but there's they have so many nuances today. I don't even know if they're forms as much as they are um, vari- variations on a theme. So just talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think I think their stability, I mean, very abstractly, and I'll try to be more concrete, uh, but very abstractly, it's how much do they accord with human nature, forms of government? Do they really take into account what human nature is in its pre- and post-fallen way, you know, the fact that there is a good, but there is sin? And how much does it account for the practice or experience of particular countries as opposed to imposing itself. And I think um, some of the instability of Europe is you have a fairly new, fragile, and I don't think entirely in accord with human nature system, the European Union implanted on top of very long standing, if not always just and good regime types. In some ways, trying to react to them in many ways, the European Union uh just like the uh United Nations and all that are in, in reactions to World War II and trying to say we can never let you know Germany become fascist again. We can never have Europe for after two times once in night in the night early uh, and then the mid not, you know uh twentieth century ravage itself and bring the rest of the world in we can 't let that happen again. Uh, But I think that there are serious issues with the EU and the way it is in some ways forced a one fits a size fits all version of of justice and government on the peoples. The fact that how bureaucratic it's been and that you're getting a very um, intense and I think damaging reaction to it. Uh, from a kind of uh, a nationalist uh, authoritarianism um, that some of these articles have talked about, and I think that uh, America's got its issues, and some of them have some parallels. But that I don't think we have quite that extreme imposition uh, and extreme battles between, I think, two more cartoonish versions of human nature uh, that need a kind of moderation between themselves but seem to make themselves more extreme. I think the the, the, the nationalist and the bureaucratic globalist versions of of politics are getting more and more cartoonish in Europe and making it harder and harder to govern decently. And I don't think this is going to make it any better.
0: So I'm talking with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We're, we're talking about, you know, some some of the themes um, of conversations that we're likely to have after COVID-19 uh, passes, at least this season of it. Um, this is a global event. It is almost assuredly going to result in mammoth societal changes. It has already resulted in very big policy changes here in the United States of America, political changes are likely to come as well. I believe we'll see a season of um of reflection, lots of investigations those will some be good, some be bad, but it's those investigations uh adam that l- will likely sort of produce the who wins narrative right like where is the truth? where can it be found um and then who gets blamed or praised It will be some of that, and then there will be some reform that comes out of that, but there may also be just the collapse of uh, of current forms in, in certain places around the globe. I think we have to prepare for that. I think we have to prepare for um, radical new realities in some places.
1: And I think that how our international relations reacts or sees the world may have to change because of that. There's kind of a uh, a, 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 a dueling versions of the world, one that kind of looks like the world uh, a kind of habesian world uh, Thomas Hobbes, a seventeenth century political philosopher who basically said um, a lot of life and a lot of interactions between people and nations without any rules is solitary, nasty, brutish, and short that there's na- you know that, that, that there's a lot of antagonism there's a lot of distrust there's a lot of battles between countries versus another system that tries to really build a kind of super society over all the societies. And this kind of builds off some of the, the national versus uh, global things I was talking about before that tends to try to build trust and treaties and common agreements. And when the world goes from reform to revolution, and I think at least parts of this world, the the systems are going to get tested to the point where that happens, um, uh, a lot of trust breaks down. A lot of ability to cooperate and work with each other becomes harder, if not impossible. And I think that who those become is going to be, like you said, the narrative. Uh, 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 and, and by the way, I don't mean narrative as in it's going to be pure political power. We should try to find what's really the fault here. Uh, but you know, a good example of that—that's a minor one—is when you had um, you know, when you had the Great Recession who was at fault for the great recession back in 2008 2009 was it greedy uh capitalists who were uh ex- who were taking advantage of people or was it a uh government that didn't know how to regulate and uh, you know, forced private businesses into making terrible decisions that hurt people. And, and the way you answer that says a lot about are you going to say a freer market is the answer or a more socialistic market is the answer. Those are the kind of things when I say that who gets blamed makes a big difference as far as the reaction is going to be. and I think that's going to have massive uh, international relations uh, 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 implications going forward as well.
0: I'm talking with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. He and I will return to this conversation in just a
1: moment. You
0: Continue my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Um Adam, we have um We have ongoing concern, I think, um, not only about our welfare but the welfare of others around the world. Um, And we we can speculate what might happen at the end of all of this. Um, What's happening from your perspective, kind of in the midst of it? What what are some of the thoughts uh, that public intellectuals are giving right now to the ramifications of how this all plays out?
1: Right, Uh, and I think they're previewing what might. becoming later. And, and of course, by being a public intellectual, one has a bit of a distance sometimes from on-the-floor events. Um, But, you know, uh, among the things that I think are being uh, questioned in the United States is not only is it feeding into some longer-term debates about how isolated versus integrated with the world we should be, um, but it's also asking whether some of our more um, some of our assumptions should be rethought about how our own government works. And, uh, you know, one in particular that uh, in in more uh, right-leaning spheres has been going around is uh, the question of originalism itself. So originalism, the idea that uh, the rule of law says that we should follow what the makers of a law um, meant in 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 passing it and making it binding on us um there's now even some rethinking that uh issues like this shows that that 's inadequate that we need a government that is stronger than maybe the original founders wanted that is more uh has a more uh imposes more of its beliefs on what is good and right and just on On the people than 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 maybe what the original intent thought, and so it 's very interesting to see something that was that core i mean i think it 's a good one example because something um, you know, it, it seemed that if you're going to be a conservative uh, politically, uh, to question the idea of originalism was to basically not be a conservative in, in a certain sense. And so the idea that uh, uh, some major figures, a major figure in the Atlantic uh, publication, you know, made this kind of claim, I think just shows how far this this, this might be going and how some, how some of these things are being questioned.
0: So when you use the term conservative, let's just define that for people. When we think of that term historically, in our conversations here in the United States of America, what did it mean to be conservative?
1: Right, and and mainly uh, what the, the way we understand conservative today broadly is a movement that arose in the 1940s and 50s as a reaction, I think, first to the New Deal uh, that was itself a reaction to a major cataclysm, the Great Depression, but also the uh, rise of communism. And that really came to probably its heyday in, in the 1980s in Ronald Reagan that says that um, what we believe is that the American founding was really good, that we should uh, follow it, uh, follow what its documents claim, what its founders thought, and that what we think that means is a uh, regulated but largely open market economically Um, a government that is limited to the protection of individual rights and what it does, and that is stopped when it goes beyond that to uh, violate rights itself, and a kind of social conservatism that uh, doesn't really say the government imposes um, uh, too much morality, but claims that government should facilitate churches and families. Cultivating and inculcating morality, I think those are some of the major understandings of conservatism since I'd say the 1940s and 50s uh, and e- those, all of those things are being I think questioned and challenged from the right, just as we're seeing a kind of socialist revolution on the left that preceded all this and I think are only going to be uh, uh, further brought up given given the the challenges and strains that this virus is putting on our on our system.
0: So, Adam, I appreciate the way that you framed that because I think you are exactly right. And I think that the challenge of thinking big and having big, thoughtful conversations when we are worried about whether or not we're going to run out of toilet paper, um, I think that's the challenge in front of us. How do we, as a people, have substantive conversations about who we want to be on the other side of this? because the people right. who have those conversations now will get to lead people who didn't bother thinking about it.
1: Right. And I think this is where uh, the American people as and, and Christians in, in in particular who uh, uh, I think need to realize that you have to think short term. Uh but you have to think about how does the sick person you know Get better, how do we get ventilators where they need to go? How do we uh, keep uh, the most vulnerable in our population protected? How do we keep small businesses and, and workers as, as as employed as possible and, and keep from all you know keep them from being too damaged uh, short term but that any choice we make short term is going to have medium to long term consequences that what you do now is going to echo into the future and the difficulty, and this is a difficulty, and I'm not saying that, you know, just do it because it's easy, is we're going to have to think on both tracks. Uh, We're going to have to say, all right, what we need right now is this. In doing so, uh, what are the short-term helps and benefits to people? What might this be setting as a precedent or pattern for the rest of our lives and it that's very hard to do but i think it's something that people have to stop and and, and do it's going to be more natural to deal with the immediate how can we also deal with the medium to long term and that's why i think some of these questions are good to ask and they're not necessarily trying to uh, uh you know act as if the rest of the world isn't happening i think they're trying to say the rest of the world is happening and we need to think uh, uh we need to be good planners for what's coming next
0: I think there are um, there are hard conversations to be had, and there those hard conversations require um, prayer. They require um, wisdom. They require discernment. They require delayed gratification. They require our sacrificing um, some of what we might want right now for the future um, and the promise of the future. And I think that you know the Christians who are prepared to. Lead people into those kinds of substantive conversations are going to be um, the thinkers that we need to be talking with and hearing from, not only in these days, but certainly in in the weeks and months and years to come, because the consequences of the choices that we are making today as America are are mammoth. I don't, I really don't think people have fully considered um, just how significant the economic changes are going to be in a country where we have now gone to World War II levels of government involvement in our, in our personal um, and corporate economic life, um, let alone just the ma- massive shifts that are going to take place in education, higher ed, on and on and on. I mean, just our institutions are going to be different after this is over. So thank you, Adam, as always, for having the conversation this morning and for helping us think through these things as we move forward.
1: Hope everyone stays safe, and and we'll see how this all goes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. That was Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You can follow him on Twitter at CarringtonAM. We'll be right back. So where in the word are you today? Uh, Today is the Monday of Holy Week. So where in the word are you today? Let me encourage you to Map out a game plan for your reading during this week. You might have started yesterday at the end of the gospel, uh, the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. You might have started at Mark chapter 10, verse 46, and you might have read through Mark 11, 11, which means you're going to pick up today at Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Try to look at the rest of the Gospel of Mark um, day to day because it will take you all the way through Holy Week, and that is what I will encourage us to, to be doing each and every day. Let us be in the Word of God. Let us be walking with Jesus, journeying with Jesus as He approaches the cross. Um, if you're reading the Gospel of John with us, this is uh, this is the week that you are in, um, in the text of Scripture where Jesus washes their feet, and we just have so many incredible revelations of the person of Christ, not only the work of Christ upon the cross. So, Just appreciate uh, hearing from you where you are in the Word. In the next hour, we're going to spend some time in the book of Psalms. So stay with us. Uh, Join us for another hour here on Mornings with Carmen. David Taylor, author of Open and Unafraid, will be here. And then Dr. David Aikman will be back, editor of Godspeed uh, Magazine, talking with us from the U.K. about global events not just things here in the United States, but around the world. I know many of you just glad to hear that he's, uh, he's back today. Yes, indeed, he's back. All right, friends, um, be encouraged today to walk your faith out into the world that God so loves in ways that honor Jesus. And today that means also honoring those social distancing recommendations that we would love our neighbors as we love ourselves, concerned with the health and welfare of the cities in which we live. This is Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back.